Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 14, it says, Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, 12. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. So he said to them, how is it you don't understand? In Mark chapter 8, the chapter began with a glimpse a picture of the compassion of Jesus as he fed the multitudes in verses 1 through 9. It continued with concern as Jesus was confronted by the religious leaders. And Jesus and his disciples, after the confrontation, will get into the boat near Capernaum, head to the other side as they're sailing towards Bethsaida. It continues that that in their willingness to make a quick exit to the other side, the disciples forgot to pack a falafel lunch. And because they forgot to pack lunch, Jesus will use their forgetfulness as an opportunity to teach. By the way, life is filled with teachable moments, isn't it? All of a sudden, you're minding your own business, you're doing your own thing, there's a flat tire on the side of the road, there's a red light in front of you, um, you forgot to bring your checkbook to church, and all of a sudden your stomach starts grumbling, and you go, I want to go to Denny's for all-you-can-eat pancakes. And your mind switches off as you're thinking about what you want to do after church. In the chapter, we've learned about the servant's provision in verses 1 through 10. And then the servant's provocation in verses 11 through, through 13. But now we're going to also learn a little bit about the servant's patience as he deals with his disciples. And so in verse 14, look what it says. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. They're in the boat, they're headed across the water, they suddenly forget, we are on an adventure with Jesus, and we have nothing to eat. Now we might provide an excuse for the disciples, after all, They've just crossed the lake one time. They've come to the area called Magdala or Magdan. 
They thought they were going to stay there longer. They didn't think they were going to leave so soon. There isn't an ample, ample opportunity to make provision. And Jesus is going to, again, use their forgetfulness as an opportunity to teach some much-needed lessons on the immediate challenges that they face and the dangers that are in front of them. Henry Brooks Adams wrote, quote, a teacher affects eternity. He or she can never tell where his or her influence stops. James writes in James chapter three, verse one, don't be many of you teachers. Don't presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that those who teach will incur a more stricter judgment. One TV host begins his broadcast with caution. You are about to enter the no spin zone. And that's nonsense because everything that moves spins. It's nonsense because the moment a person opens up their mouth, they have a bias and they have a way of thinking and they have something that they want to say. If it is moving, it will spin. It will spin to the left. It will spin to the right. Nicholas Johnson said all television is educational television. The question really is, what are they teaching? What are they teaching? What is the influence that they seek to impart? Ruth Vaughn was right when she said teaching is partnership with God. You are not molding iron or chiseling marble. You're working with the creative creator of the universe and shaping human character and determining human destiny. Every single person who presumes to instruct is instructing something. And look what it says. They're already in the spin zone. Verse 15. Then he charged them saying, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. In verse 15, I want to draw attention to that expression. Jesus charged them. In the original language, it's die, stiletto, it's imperfect. It indicates repetition. The charge seems to be an ongoing charge. The implication is repetition. It's as if the text is telling us, I need to bring something to your attention. I need you to know something. I need to draw something to your attention. The word take heed translates the word oreo or orate. Here it means to see or behold, but it isn't just to look at. It means to look at and think about. So the implication is I want you to see carefully and I want you to think about it carefully. The idea is to understand through observation and experience. There are two important characteristics that are necessary for a person to take heed in order to take Heed, you have to be willing to think. And you have to be willing to exercise discernment. Now, I want you to think about what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is, I need you to pay close attention, and then I need you to think carefully. 
And then I need you to understand and exercise discernment. Remember what discernment is. Discernment isn't just simply choosing between what is right and what is wrong. It's choosing between what is right and what is almost right. The servant, Jesus, issues a a warning. And when Jesus warns, he invites you and me to look carefully and think carefully and use judgment. And in the verse, the charge is in the present imperative, which means the disciples were to start right now. It isn't, oh, by the way, you can do this when we get to the other side of the shore. The implication is, I need you to pay attention now. I need you to take heed now. I need you to understand now. And the word translated beware is from a a, a verb, uh, blepo, here, blepete. It means to see. It means to perceive It means to grasp in order to exercise caution. It means to have a watchful eye. It means to guard something or someone. It means to protect something or someone. Once again, it's in the present imperative, which means I need you to Be willing to prepare right now. Protect right now. Continue to watch right now. Be aware of the danger right now. Beware incorporates the idea of warning and it reminds the believer of his or her responsibility to the word of God. Whenever Jesus says, I need to warn you. It should cause something inside of your heart to pay close and immediate attention. When you see the word danger. You should respond. I mean, it's one thing if you're on the road and you're driving and you'll notice it says slippery or it says dangerous. And you hopefully you're smart enough to go, hey, I think that the sign is posted for a good reason. And so beware incorporates the idea of warning, but it also incorporates the idea of the provision of God. Elsewhere in the Bible, we're told beware of covetousness, beware of evil workers. It says in Philippians three two, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men. Paul writes in Colossians two eight, beware lest you forget the Lord. It says in Deuteronomy six twelve, beware lest you be led by the error of the wicked, it says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. And so Jesus says, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, you all know what leaven is. It's yeast. And when placed in bread, it causes the bread to rise And so in the ancient culture of Israel, they would store the leftover fermented yeast and they would use it for the next day's loaf. And so leaven in the first century, perhaps in Jewish culture for a very long time, leaven became a type, a symbol, an example of evil. But not always. Sometimes leaven wasn't just simply seen as something that was evil. It was seen as something that was benign and influential. And we might think of it in that way. 
Leaven is like influence. And remember, influence can be for good or for evil, for right or for wrong. And leaven, like influence, isn't visible to the naked eye. It spreads quickly. It invades and inhabits its host. Leaven spreads slowly, quietly, effectively, and then it touches and interacts with its host. And by the way, the leaven of the Pharisees incorporates everything wrong with the religious leaders. Hypocrisy, empty ritual, rote religion, self-righteousness, bigotry. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22, verse 15, the religious leaders plot how they might entangle Jesus in his talk. And it says, and they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus said, well, you know, I I sort of believe in a flat tax. No, he didn't say that. He didn't say he believed in a flat tax. It wasn't like he was on CNN and he was going, well, here's my position on taxation. I I, I don't think it should be more than 25% of the person's gross income. He doesn't say any of that. Because he understands the wicked influence that's taking place because the point of engaging Jesus in the discussion isn't to determine his views on taxes. It's to incite a riot. It's in the hopes that he will say, don't pay your taxes and Rome will find him and kill him. Do pay your taxes and the people will find him and kill him. But remember what the net result is. They want him to be found and they want him to be eliminated. And you remember the story, how it goes. Jesus says, give me a coin. And they hand him a coin and he holds the coin up and he says, whose image is this? And they say, Caesar. And he says, then you should give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but you should give to God what belongs to God. What belongs to Caesar? Everything that Caesar makes. He mined the silver. He he enslaved the people to engrave the die. He, He enslaved the people to hit the planchet. He's the one who placed it into circulation. You should give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And you should give to God what belongs to God. You know, it's the irony of his message. Who, what belongs to God? Yeah, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the silver that's on the planet. God created all things according to his own plans and purposes. God created Caesar. And so who is Caesar's image and likeness in, con- in conformity to? Caesar was made in the image of God. It's Jesus' subtle way of saying, give to him what belongs to him, but give to God what belongs to God. Most of the Herodians were followers of Herod. These are people who are looking for political solutions to the problems that human beings face. 
They fell into the religious camp of the Sadducees. The leaven of both Pharisee and Sadducee or Herodians is their doctrine, their teaching, their way of living. But like leaven, they fermented and soured and infected everything that they came in contact with. In a sense, the Pharisees were the religious and political conservatives. In a sense, the Sadducees were the religious and the political liberals. You see, the Pharisees had an orthodox view of God. They had an orthodox view of the Bible. They believed in a personal God. They believed that the Bible was the word of God. They added the rules and the regulations, the rituals, the ceremonies, and they would put man-made limitations and restrictions and prohibitions so that everyone would act in a way that was consistent with their theology. And the Herodians were mostly from the ideological and religious outlook that you and I would know as Sadducees. These were the elite. These were the people who cooperated with Rome. The Sadducees believed in the first five books of Moses, but they denied the reality of angels and demons. They re denied the reality of heaven and hell. They saw their role as cooperation with Rome as an opportunity to make wealth and to make money and then spread the wealth around. They embraced the first five books of Moses, but for the most part, they rejected the supernatural. They rejected miracles. Their leaven, their false teaching wasn't that they denied all of God's word, just the part that they didn't agree with. They were free thinkers, rationalists, secularists, practical, materialists. They worked with Rome promoting and advancing Greek philosophical ideas, instituting and embracing Roman and Greek culture. And this is the reasons why the Romans put the Sadducees in charge. The Romans put the Sadducees in charge because the Sadducees were the people who were willing to cooperate with Rome concerning the goals of Rome and the principles of Rome and the outlook of Rome. The Sadducees or the Herodians were looking for wealth, worldly materialism, secular philosophy, liberal theology. What's the leaven of the Pharisees? It may have included hypocrisy, empty rituals, self-righteousness, bigotry. What's the leaven of, the, of Herod? It may have included power through government, skepticism, cynicism, immorality, compromise, worldliness. What was the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod that Jesus is warning about? If I were to cram into one word all of the lies of both parties, all of the wickedness of both parties, all of the sin of both parties. I would do it in one word, one tiny, pregnant, powerful word. It's the word unbelief. Because you know what Herod and the Pharisees had in common? They both didn't believe Jesus. They both didn't believe the miracles of Jesus, the message of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. They denied Jesus. Horatius Bonner writes, 
In all unbelief, there are these two things. A good opinion of oneself and a bad opinion of God. That's really the essence of unbelief, isn't it? You have an exaggerated sense of you and a less than appropriate view of God. Bonner added, all unbelief is the belief of a lie. Hence the very name unbelief. There's a reason why it's called unbelief. It's because you believe the lie. That God isn't real or that God doesn't care or that God isn't there. We might think of the leaven as the influences that invade our lives and infect our lives and inform our thinking. And look how the disciples respond in verse 16. And they reasoned among themselves saying, it's because we have no bread. It's gone right over their head. They don't get it. The disciples began and continue the discussion. I want you again to draw close attention in verse 16. And they reasoned among themselves. pros alelos, Imperfect tense. They began the discussion, continued the discussion. It was an ongoing discussion. The fact that they reasoned among themselves indicates not just a willingness to examine what's going on, but it's an opportunity for them to share blame. The implication in the text is they started talking about it and they continued talking about it. Why didn't you bring bread? What were you thinking? Can you hear the conversation? Who has the money bag? Judas, Judas, you have the money bag. What were you thinking? Why didn't you make a stop at Safeway, Albertsons, or King Supers and get some falafel? You knew that we were going to need bread at some point. Or maybe they looked at Peter. Oh, Mr. Rock, Peter, head of the party. And Peter goes, I'm in charge of the boat. It's my job to make sure that we have the boat, that the boat is clean and the boat is equipped. I can't be responsible for everything. And so here it begins. It's blame. Who do we blame? Who's responsible? Who's in charge? Who can we blame for the fact that we don't have what we think that we want to have? (laughs) If something goes wrong, why does it always have to be the pastor's fault? Because you're in charge. The disciples missed the point. The disciples completely misunderstand the words of Jesus. The disciples thought that Jesus was perhaps rebuking them for their careless, forgetful circumstances. Maybe they're reasoning that Jesus is warning them. Okay, Jesus, what are you saying? Bread, leaven, Pharisees, Herod. What are you saying exactly? Are you saying it's a bad idea to sit down and have dinner with the Pharisees, with the political? elite what exactly are you saying to us by the way the Pharisees had a very strict rule 
about the ritual and the kind of leaven that they would allow in their presence or that the bread that they consumed. The Pharisees used the rules governing leaven in order to stress ceremonial cleanness. So what is Jesus saying? Don't sit down with the spiritual and political leaders fellowship. Don't eat their leaven. Here's the the disciples. They're looking at Jesus. They've got that deer in the headlight look and they're going, they're looking at Jesus and they're going, this is about bread, right? This this has something to do with food, maybe. And Jesus says, wrong. You know, some people are like blotters. They soak up everything, but they get it backwards. And Jesus proceeds in a series of questions and rapid discussion. The first five questions, Jesus rebukes his disciples for their thick-headed obtuseness. The next four, he rebukes them for their focus on physical food instead of spiritual nourishment. Why in the world are they going to worry about something as stupid as a physical provision in a small boat when Jesus is right there with them? And so he talks about the danger of spiritual blindness and hardness of heart. Look at verse 17. But Jesus being aware of it, said to them, why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Beware of a rubber conscience and a concrete heart. I want you to get the picture. They're in the boat. They're crossing the lake. They're trying to divide the blame. And Jesus says, it's not blame that you should be focusing on. It's brain. Think. Think it through. Think what you're saying. Do you still not get it? Do you still not understand? By the way, hardness of heart, I think, takes two forms. Cluelessness. Where you just don't have a clue about what's going on. There are people who are clueless about the Bible. You open up the Bible and you go, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And and it's not a, a bad thing or a wrong thing. Some people just don't know about the Bible. They don't know what's in the Bible. They don't know what it says. When you say, turn to Hezekiah, some of you will actually try to go there. It's not wrong. It just means you're clueless about what's really in there. And I think that in all fairness to our friends, the disciples, I'm going to suggest to you that this is the kind of cluelessness that they're experiencing. It's one based on ignorance. But then there's another kind of cluelessness. It's the kind of cluelessness that Herod. And the Pharisees have already embraced. It's a kind of stubborn willfulness that refuses to embrace the truth. No matter what you say, no matter what you do, no matter what evidence you offer, no matter what you say, no matter what you do. When you point to the miracles of Jesus, when you point to the prophecies of Jesus, when you point to the life of Jesus, when you when you point to the ministry of Jesus, nothing, nothing, nothing will convince them. Because they are not interested 
in embracing the truth under any circumstance. No matter what you say, no matter what you do, there is an impenetrable wall that has been erected in some people's mind and heart where they have absolutely no desire whatsoever to let even a little bit of Jesus get inside. Then in verse 18, it says, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember, it says in verse 18, Jesus, by the way, is incorporating the language and the prophecy of Ezekiel in chapter 12, verse 2, where he where the people and the children of Judah and Jerusalem hear the message of the prophet over and over again. They see the prophet with their eyes. They hear the message with their ears. But theirs is a physical obstinacy. They refuse to see. They refuse to hear. The questions Jesus points to is the failure of his disciples to grasp not physical reality, but spiritual reality. Their physical reality is, yo-ho, yo-ho, it's a Christian's life for me. We're sailing across the Galilee, but we haven't brought bread. If we don't eat soon and our stomachs remain empty, we will soon be dead. In other words, here they are. Here's Jesus. And they're fixated and focused on the physical, the tangible, the temporal. For whatever reason, truth, eternity, spirituality has not awakened inside of them. And so he says, look at the questions. Why do you reason? Verse 17. Why do you fail to perceive? Verse 17. Why do you fail to understand? Verse 17. Why do you have such a why? Why have you failed to have a soft heart? Verse 17. Why have you failed to see? Verse 18. Why have you failed to hear? Verse 18. Why have you failed to remember? Verse 18. Question. Do you accept the authority of Jesus in your life? You sang about it earlier. Open my eyes. Open up my heart to see. You come and you pray and you open up your Bible and you say, Lord, you are the Savior. You are the Lord. You are the Lord of my mind and you're the Lord of my mouth and you're the Lord of my heart. You are the Lord who has forgiven my past. You are the Lord who is in my present. You are the Lord who has established my future. Do you accept the authority of Jesus in your life? Well, then you have to accept the words of Jesus in your life. You have to allow him to speak to you. Charles Allen writes, quote, with infinite love and compassion, our Lord understood the human predicament. He had deep empathy with people. He saw their needs, their weaknesses, their desires and their hurt. He understood and was concerned for people. Every word he spoke was uttered because he saw a need for that word in some human life. His concern was always to uplift, never to tear down, always to heal, never to hurt, always to save, never to condemn, unquote. Jesus rebukes our preoccupation with earthly matters, not for the purpose of, of getting us in trouble, 
But the disciples have began to think just like the people in the world. Uh oh, we forgot bread. We're in trouble. Jesus is going to be angry. And Jesus is saying, how come you don't get it? You know, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, oh, ye of little faith in Matthew 16, 18. I want you to understand something. That even the rebuke of Jesus is kindness. It's sort of like your mom. Do you remember when your mom said, I'm not going to hit you? And some of you are thinking, you didn't know my mom. She never said those words. Maybe you had a mom who said, wait till your father gets home. Because whatever punishment that she could impart would seem like joy compared to when dad got home. But Jesus speaks the language of kindness. Kindness is the language that even the deaf can hear and even the dumb can understand. Kindness is the language that even the blind can see. Let me be a little kinder. Let me be a little blinder to the faults of those about me. Let me praise a little more. Let me be a little meeker with the brother that is weaker. Let me think more of my neighbor and a little less of me. And so Jesus says in verse 19 about the danger of failing to understand the Lord's provision. He says in verse 19, When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, 12. Verse 20, also when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. The disciples were eyewitnesses to two great miracles. A crowd of people hungering for God's word and God's provision had just gone three days without food. The Lord fed them with just seven loaves. Jesus is saying, okay, do the math. Five loaves, five thousand. Seven loaves, four thousand. One loaf, thirteen Jews in the middle of a lake. You don't get it, do you? I am here with you, Jesus is saying. I'm the satisfying solution. I'm not just a temporary substitute for bread. He's inviting them to think about their life and think about their past and think about their circumstances he is doing exactly the same thing with you. Have you already forgotten about your past? If Jesus is willing to forgive you in the past and reconcile you in the past and redeem you in the past and provide for you heaven in the past. Doesn't it make sense that he'll care for you now? If he was faithful, then won't he be faithful now? He says in verse 21, so he said to them, how is it that you don't understand? 
How is it possible to miss the point so thoroughly and so consistently? Memory and understanding go together in discerning spiritual truth. And I need you to understand something. One Bible teacher writes, God does not ask that we understand truth without evidence. Our problem is that we forget so quickly. How is it that you don't understand Remember, we've already talked about the evidence that's been supplied. Virgin birth. Miracles. Wonderful words. Remember what we've already been taught. Who has said the things that Jesus has said and who has done the things that Jesus has done and who has power already over disease and death itself and over demons and over disaster over and over and over and over. He has proved himself faithful. So why would you wake up this morning and wonder if he's still faithful? Why would you wake up this morning and come to church and wonder if Jesus is mad at you because you forgot to do something? You forgot to take something. You forgot to bring something. You forgot to be something. We grieve the heart of Jesus. Jesus grieves over our spiritual blindness, our hard heart, our material and carnal minds, our failure to see, our failure to understand his provision. In Luke's gospel, after the resurrection, you'll remember on the road to Emmaus, when the disciples are walking away from Jerusalem and Jerusalem is the place where life was and Jerusalem is the place where the resurrection took place. He said, oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken in Luke 24, 25. How could you ignore? How could you pretend? How could you forget everything that was said by Moses and everything that was said by Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel the prophet? How is it that we fail to understand that Jesus is the creator? Jesus is the sustainer. It reminds me of that Sunday school poem. Said the robin to the sparrow. I would surely like to know why these anxious human beings Fret about and worry so, said the sparrow to the robin. I imagine it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. The sun knows how to shine. The moon knows how to revolve around our planet and draw the tide in and out. The planet itself knows what it's supposed to do. The air that we breathe, the animals that exist, the birds in the air. Everything, 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 everything is cooperating with God. Except you. And me. When we ask this question. Can I trust him? Will he provide for me? Will he make a way for me? The God who was faithful in the past. Will he be faithful in the present? And will he be faithful in the future? And for the unbeliever. 
who comes week after week and who, who torments themselves and submits themselves to these awful messages that I give. And in their heart, they hear a voice whisper, I'm not ready. But God is ready. Jesus has provided salvation. The angels in heaven are ready. Your family's ready. Your church is ready. And you're not ready. There's still something else. There's still something more. There's one more obstacle. There's one more evidence. There's one more thing that you need. And Jesus says, beware, beware, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven of Herod. What is the leaven? It is the influence that would cause you in this world to believe that the Bible isn't true and that Jesus isn't Lord and that heaven doesn't matter. And that the only thing that matters is what you do here and what you do now and what you save here and what you save now and what you have here and what you have now. How would you describe your service to the Lord? Is it wholehearted? Is it half-hearted? Or is it hard-hearted? You know, half-heartedness consists of serving God in such a way as not to offend the devil. You know, I want to serve God, but I don't want to make anybody mad in the process. But the truth is, the devil will have a conniption that the moment that you decide to turn from your sin and turn to the Savior. There's a reason why Jesus said, I didn't come simply to bring peace, but a sword. Because the moment that you embrace Jesus' way of thinking and Jesus' way of living... The moment you embrace the message of Jesus and the person of Jesus, a deep divide is cut down the middle. Because the leaven of this world is the leaven of a political system and a material system and a carnal system that invites you to become preoccupied with the things that in the end will only have limited value. There's nothing more important than your soul. By the way, Jesus never criticizes or condemns the law of Moses or the word of God. Jesus condemns the religious leaders, false interpretation and application of that word. And there's an influence that you will submit to. You will submit to the influence of this world's way of thinking or you will submit to the influence of love. This is why Jesus said, I need you to love each other. And greater love hath no man than this, that he or she is willing to lay down their life for a friend. Make no mistake about it. Love is influential. It is invisible. And it will affect everything that it touches. Love is the invisible yeast, the leaven that we're called to spread. So what has God done for you in the past? Doesn't it make sense that he'll do it in the present? Doesn't it make even more sense? 
that if he was faithful then, he'll be faithful now? Doesn't it make sense that the voices that call out from this world and from Satan and from your flesh to discourage you, to cause you to doubt, to cause you to walk in a way that is inconsistent with what Jesus is asking you to do. You know what I'd like to say? At this point in the passage, all 12 go, we get it. Thanks for that message, Jesus. Thanks for letting us know. But there's still still some challenges ahead. There's still some limitations. There's still some discouragements that we're yet to find. But we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we do thank you and praise you and glorify you. Lord, it doesn't make much sense to us. To have a hard heart, Lord, when you've given us so much. Lord, we know that we face the danger of grieving you and we face the danger of not trusting you. And we have we face the danger of not understanding exactly what it is that you're trying to say to us. But, Lord, we pray that we would open up our hearts and that we would open up our eyes to see. That you would show us who we are and what we're supposed to be. Lord, I pray for the person whose heart remains recalcitrant. That no matter how many times heaven knocks, no matter how many times the Holy Spirit whispers, no matter how many times the invitation is extended, the answer is no. Lord, I pray that you would do what only you can do. That, Lord, you would penetrate that hard heart. That you'd give them a heart of flesh. Lord, that you would answer the opposition, I'm not ready. And that you would remind them that heaven is ready. So is hell. Hell is ready for the person who rejects you, resists you, denies you. Lord, it doesn't have to be that way. Save them, Lord. Reach out to them. Extend the invitation. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to their heart. Cause them to pray that simple prayer. Lord, I'm so sorry that I'm a sinner. And I'm so sorry that I've offended you. And I'm so sorry that I've resisted you. And that I've rejected you. And that I understand that Jesus Christ. I understand that he's the Lord. That he died on the cross for my sin. And he rose from the dead for my justification. I understand that Jesus is willing to save me. And I understand I can't save myself. So I trust him for my life right now and for my life forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.